This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y-L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Neil shares his experiences of dealing with the tragedy of 9-11, the Great Recession, and the Great Pause. Then we talk in depth about his books, the four currently published and the one soon to be released. Neil makes a generous offer to give one of his books, The Bomb Squad, away for free to anyone interested in reading it and then leaving a review on Amazon and Goodreads. Here is Neil's story. Uh, my name is Neil Perry Gordon. I live in the New York metropolitan area. I actually precisely live in Park Ridge, New Jersey, which is about 30 miles um, west of Manhattan. I grew, was born in the Bronx, grew up here, spent 10 years in Florida, and um, I've been up here, uh, back up here since 1990. So to talk about life-changing events, I thought about um, your topic, and I thought I was thinking back on my life, I was thinking about life-changing events, and there's several actually, and I was trying to think about how they connect to one another, which sort of I'm even thinking even further. There's there's a group of life-changing events that are uh, world-changing at the same time, like we're, what we're experiencing now. And when I go back and think about in my life the the biggest world-shaking historical events that there were, um, the the first one in my adult life really was was 9/11. Um, living in New York, seeing. <laughs> The twin, one of the, the twin towers going down before my eyes. I was in New Jersey, looking across the river, and and uh, saw one on fire, and then saw the plane going to the other one, and then I saw it going down. So, you know, that that was a, a life-changing event. That I tend to, when these things happen, I tend to sort of reevaluate my own life at that moment and see if there's significant changes I should be making. Um, so I'm not left on the other side of the event, so to speak, um, like trying to figure out what 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 am I going to do next. So there's, there's three events I think that that all are similar. We have the happened 9/11. Then of course in 2008 we had the Great Recession, and during that time I made a significant change in the way I, I was doing my business. I'm not only a, a novelist. I I've been a novelist for the past three years, but over 30 years, <laughs> 10 times longer than that, I've been in the uh, drapery and window covering business. So when I was in, in 9-11, I was hanging draperies in someone's home 
in, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and looking across the river, in 2008, when we had the Great Recession, I shifted my entire business model from um, working one way to, to, to working a different way, which was a, which was a total risk. And sub subsequently, I've had my my 2008, 2009, all of my best years in business, and ever since it kept increasing. So it took a it took a, a world event to make me make a shift because I saw something happening. I didn't want to be left in the dust and I made that change. And that was the thinking about now with the great pause, as people have been calling it, is another chance to um, metamorphize, to make another change and to go in new directions. And of course, unlike those other events, which were just, you know, they were very short in duration. Um, this one is longer, though, uh, I was just seeing before they were talking on the news how wars have World War II lasted six years, the World War One lasted six years, and and and, and Vietnam was eight years, and and all these events that we went through as a country were much longer in duration and, and much more, you know, in terms of of, of a period of time, uh, much longer to endure. And this is much shorter, but again, if you look at the amount of deaths that we've had during this time. Uh, it does match the great wars that we've had. So as I sit here uh, at home in New Jersey, locked down in quarantine, basically the only place I go to these days is to the grocery store and back, which is my which is my big outing. But I don't do I maybe do that once a week. So as I sit here in quarantine and and I'm a writer now, so I write, and that that has given me a lot of time to write. But it also gives me a lot of time to think of. You know, what is this, what will this look like on the other side when we finally allowed to get out again and and socialize and um, try to reconnect with all the other people in a physical way rather than we're doing it now over the phone or internet. You know, it it it, it pauses gives me pause to think on how I how I want to you know change my life at this point, and I think I've 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 been able to be inspired by having this moment to, to, to contemplate these type of changes that are going to occur. So, you know, I, I look back at the, the those three massive events, 9-11, Great Recession and the Great Pause, while there was great loss in all three of those in terms of deaths and and, um, and, and people losing loved ones and, 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 and tumultuous times, there were still positive things that come out of it as well. Um, and my nature is to be positive and, and to try to look on the positive side of things. And I, I think that I'm looking positive, not only for myself, but for my family and, and for my, the people in, my, in the circle of my life, that we're all going to be moving on to a better place after this, after this, this passes. So, you know, a life-changing event is not just always, listen, I went through a divorce. That was certainly a life-changing event. And positive things came out of that as well. But that was certainly very internal to just to me, whereas these other events, we all share in the same event at the same time. And that to me is fascinating, maybe because it is a, as a writer, uh, I, 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 I am so fascinated by seeing other people's reactions to it and the brave people that are out there, that the new heroes of the day. Um, I think back on 9-11, um, the heroes back then were all the firefighters rushing to the tower, trying to rescue people. The heroes of the Great Recession were the, the people trying to put the country back together again economically when we were basically on the brink of disaster. And now the heroes today are all those essential workers, those health care workers and people working in the in grocery stores and, and, and going
going out and still doing and, and law enforcement and all those type of people still out there braving an invisible disease, an invisible enemy that we that no one knows who's carrying it and everyone looks at everyone with suspicion. And a trip to the grocery store is certainly a different uh, experience than it used to be. Now it's like, I made it, I made it home. <laughs> Let me go wash my hands, <laughs> take a shower, take off my clothes. You know, it's it becomes uh, certainly a lot different than it used to be. So I, I would, that's how I would, um, encapsulate my life-changing events. I, I, I don't know if you were just looking for one particular event as one that's most significant. I'm sure many have cert certain things, but this is, this is what I came up with. Well, let's talk a little bit about 9-11. You say you were in a client's home hanging drapes. Did you, you were across the river, so you were able to, to see the event as it happened and, and you watched the tower yeah. fall? Yeah, well, driving down, so I live about 30, 20 miles north of where we were going. So we were driving down the Palisades Parkway, which is a parkway that runs along the Hudson River. And uh, we were listening to Howard Stern on the radio, me and another guy who worked with me, and we were going to install some blinds for somebody in one of the high rises in the, con in the condo. So we started hearing news that what, something's, something's happening at the World Trade Center. We didn't know what was going on. And when we finally get to the building, we find out that this plane had, had crashed into the building. We went upstairs and we started doing our work. And you know, when you're hanging windows, window coverings, you're looking out the window. <laughs> so um, it was a, it was a, a picture view of of the towers. Um, one was already hit, and then we saw it go down, and then another plane, uh, of course, hit the other one. Uh, so yeah, we had a uh, me and this other guy. We had a, a front row seat to the uh, to the event. How harrowing that must have been. I mean, uh, thousands and thousands of millions of people saw it on TV as it took place, but to be actually visually, you know, be, be able to watch it like that. Right. And then I went and visited the site. I, I volunteered um, to help feed the, um, the workers, um, the rescue workers and who were looking for bodies. So I, I was on a, on a boat right on, on, the, on the Hudson and the firefighters were coming in and different people coming in and I was there helping serving. Uh, serving them, but it was talking about a real site. That's what that place looked like at that moment, and uh, what it looks like today. It, it, you know, of course, it's all built built back up again, and there's a magnificent memorial to it. But yeah, it's something that you know that you have memories of in different parts, of different times in your life. Uh, that's definitely seared into my mind. Did the recession did that affect your business personally? Yeah, well, it affected my business, you know, but those of the, but it, it, it wasn't, it was short term. It was a short term effect. What, what happened then at that point, because you, and I think it's happening now, was that people didn't want to travel after 9 11. They wanted to stay home. So everyone was cocooning in their home. So, you know, home decorating actually benefited from that change of behavior. So, you know, it used to be you go to the airport and you just you, you zoom through security, no big deal. And, you know, after 9-11, everything clamped down. Travel was much more difficult um, and travel took, it took a while for travel to get back. So, yeah, there was a there was a, a benefit to the home decorating industry of people trying to just, just, instead of going away and staying home. We're probably going to see that again and that and to a much larger degree that people are now going to want to stay home rather than to travel. But the problem now is, is going into people's homes where before no one was afraid to bring people into their home and now they will be. Um, so it, that's going to be a new challenge in how to deal with going into people's homes uh, 
at my installers going in or me going in and having consultations in a home or an office and dealing with people uh, in, in that type of environment. It's not going to be nearly as hard as it will be for hairdressers and masseuses and chiropractors and in that industry, your nail salons, where you're actually touching the other person. Those are all certainly those businesses are going to be challenged and restaurants. I don't know how they're going to people. If we have to wear masks for a long time, I don't know how people are going to go out and have and have to eat in a restaurant. Yeah, it, 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 I think we're opening up way too soon. Uh, personally, you say you the only way you only time you get out is to go to the grocery store. Do you actually go into the to the grocery store or do you pick up curbside? No, we can't. It's not impossible. There's, there's there's some places you can do curbside. Right now, you wait in a line. They allow 75 people in the store at a time, so you wait in line. Everyone's six feet apart. Everyone has to wear a mask. So you wait outside for 10, 15 minutes. Then by the time you get in, and then it's like, you know, it's this madness of people. It's like two opposing sides of a magnet. When people sort of like approach each other, we separate. You know, it's this unhuman, inhuman type of behavior that, you know, we're being forced to do. Uh, because everyone's now in, in such fear. I was I was sort of joking the other day saying, you know, all these people have such courage. You know, these healthcare workers are so courageous. They go to wake up every day and they go into and they and, and deal with these patients who have the virus day in and day out. And I'm a little coward and I'm, I'm afraid to walk into the grocery store. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing thinking, you know, would you have when the when the moment came? Would you have the, the the courage to step up to it? And you know, looking at myself, examining me, and saying, "God, I'm not not as nervous as I used to be. I'm sort of like getting a little used to it." But you know, when it, when, this, when this first was going down, there it was all nerve wracking walking to a grocery store. I say, yeah, it's it is. It's I stay at home as much as possible. I, I share a home with my 85 year old mother, and I'm just terrified of bringing something home for her. She's, right. She has one and a half lungs, so she's compromised and has diabetes. And I have diabetes myself, so we're both pretty much, you know, we're we're definitely homebound. But I've been buying my groceries at at Walmart and picking them up, uh, and they bring them out to me in the car. So that's been that's been a blessing. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. So you're a novelist. How did that begin? What what kind of started you on that road to being a novelist? Well, before I became a novelist, I and part of my business, I'm, I'll just. That's of course led me into being a novelist. Um, I, I do a lot of public speaking uh, to architects, to designers. I've written several books to the trade for designers and architects. Uh, so I, you know, I I've always had that desire to to create that type of uh, you know type of information of communicating that way, either verbally or or writing uh, as books or or PDFs or uh, white papers and such. But I always loved the idea of just the freedom of storytelling. You know, I I have a, a real innate desire for having creativity in my life. For me, be able to be creative day in day out. For, for 30 years, my creative outlet was my business, and and I benefited from it. Now my creative outlet is my writing, and there's nothing there's nothing more wonderful than that. The freedom of writing, and I write just to write. I don't write. I don't pick a genre that I know is going to sell. I pick a genre that I like to read. Um, so I'm not writing for the market. I'm writing for myself. And you know, hopefully the people who like what I like will read it and, and respond. So I, I got into it because I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted the freedom. I wanted to create the outlet of creativity. 
uh, of a way to express myself. And as an artist, you know, there's no, there's no higher level of satisfaction than, than creating art just for art's sake. Um, you know, you're not a commissioned painter to paint someone's portrait or you're creating music for uh, a, TV, a television show for your commission. You know, you're a painter and you paint what, what really inspires you, or you, you create music for what, you know, what, what, what uh, is most important. And, and, and for, as a writer, I write just for that, for that pleasure alone. So you've written, what, five books so far? I have four published books. I have a fifth that will be coming out in a, in a couple of weeks, or actually probably by a month. And I just finished the sixth manuscript, the first draft of the manuscript, so this won't be ready till sometime in the fall. Why don't you run down the, each book that you've uh, published so far and kind of give us a, a synopsis of what it's about? Okay. Well, the first one is called The Cobbler's Tale. I wrote that in 2018. And it's, um, a, it's basically a story about my great-grandparents. The subtitle is A Jewish Immigrant Story of Survival from Eastern Europe to New York's Lower East Side. And it was published in October of 2018. So my great-grandfather, Pincus Potasnik, he uh, lived in Galicia, which is now southern Poland, which was part then, in 1910, uh, part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. So he decided that he was going to come to America. Uh, he was a cobbler and he was going to establish himself here with a business and then come back and get bring his family here. So he left and left behind his wife, his pregnant wife, and three children. One of those children was my grandfather. And uh, he came here and uh, he, he did get established. But as he, he became a little, little greedy and, and success driven, he didn't want to leave the business to go back and get his family. And then in 1916, war broke out, World War I. And they lived in one of the most um, blood, bloody battle areas of the war. The Austrian-Hungarians fighting against the, the Russians. It was, a, it was a brutal time. So that's the, the setting of the book. If I said any more, I'll be giving away uh, <laughs> be too, much, too many spoilers. But that's basically the idea. So it's it's based on my great grandparents, but I've made everyone, of course, much grander and much more heroic than they probably really were. But that's my creative license to uh, to embellish, and it is fiction. So I just use their use their characters to inspire, and uh, I'm still getting great reviews in that book. I just got one today, a wonderful review, one of my best reviews I've ever received. So um, that was that was very heartwarming. So that was that. Then in um, February of 2019, uh, Moonflower was published, and that's a 17th century tale of a young man's search for the Great Spirit. And he's a young man in the 1670s living in New Amsterdam, which was before it became New York when it was under Dutch control, um, and then traveling up to Beverwick, which is now Albany, and getting involved with a Native American tribe. And the book begins when he is going to go on this quest for, in search of the Great Spirit. It's a rite of passage type of a tale. And the shaman is going to be giving him something to drink. It's the moonflower. It's the seeds from the moonflower, also known as Datura. The plant is known as Datura. And the idea is that when he drinks this, he'll lose his memory, his complete memory. He'll know nothing moving forward. So this, the shaman gives him a parchment and gives him a 
a quill and says, write everything down of your life that you can remember from the earliest memory up until you're, you know, now you're 17 years old to your most recent memory, because this will be your biography and your document of, to tell you who you are, because once you drink this and you wake up, you'll have no memory. And he does that. He has not, he has no memory, but he also has no connection to the past either. These are just now words on, on a, on a page, so to speak, with no emotions tied to him. So that's his journey. And that's, uh, the moonflower. And then September of last year, 2019, I wrote the righteous one, which was a follow-up book to a cobbler's tale. And the righteous one, I call this a cobbler's journey into the dream world and beyond. And this is a metaphysical fiction, where the first two books were historical fiction. This is metaphysical fiction. Of course, I, 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 I look into the idea of metaphysical fiction, uh, the idea of the consciousness, the journey of the consciousness, um, how the consciousness continues to live once the body passes on. And, and in this book, we look at the idea of how to tap into that consciousness during our time that we are in this body and and that's done through the dream world through lucid dreaming in particular uh, this story has a good and evil character as well and it's the battle between good and evil and this battle takes place in that dream world um, so that's what the the righteous one is about and then the bomb squad is the uh, is the book that is the most recent and the one that I'm talking about today and that's the bomb squad I call the clash, the clash of the Patriots, book one. I'm planning to have a sequel to this. And the bomb squad, it begins at the stroke of midnight on June 30th, 1916. That's when a devastating explosion, Black Tom Island, which was an armaments depot that was just a few thousand feet from the Statue of Liberty. It rocked New York City awake that night. It was just a gigantic explosion. It was set off by the Germans. And this is a story of actually two German immigrants uh, during the outbreak of World War One, each one willing to put his life on the line. Uh, they wanted, you know, of course, to achieve a glorious victory for their cause. So, you know, both are patriots, both believe they're doing the right thing. So we have two men. Uh, on one side, uh, we have Dr. Harold Schwartz. Um, he was the administrator of Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital. And the Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital, up until that point, was the most prestigious hospital in all of the United States. Up before, up right before World War One broke out, we had millions upon millions of immigrants coming in every year. And if you came through steerage, if you were not in first class or second class, if you were in third class or steerage, you had to go through Ellis Island. And they would examine you, they would interview you, then you get a medical exam. So it was very important. And they also had a hospital there. So if you had certain things that had to be attended to, you would go to the Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital. So Dr. Schwartz was the administrator of that hospital and he's also a German spy. And he was loyal to the fatherland. And his father was a dealer in lethal weapons and a lifelong friend of Kaiser Wilhelm, who is still in power as the Kaiser of Germany, leading Germany into World War I. So the father and son are working hand in hand, hell-bent on distracting the Americans from entering the war. So the Germans believe that if they keep blowing things up here in America, America is going to be distracted and not want to enter the war. Meanwhile, I have uh, the British Secret Intelligence Service, which was known as the SIS. They came to uh, New York and they were recruiting, looking for police 
to recruit to be their eyes and ears on the ground because there was no CIA back then, uh, there was no FBI. We, the, the British, British Secret Intelligence Service was the premier intelligence service of, of the day. Uh, and so they were coming in, into New York City to recruit people. So in my story, they recruit the highly regarded New York City police detective. His name is Mac, Max Rothman. And they ask him to assemble a team of German-speaking specialists to be known as the Bomb Squad, therefore the name. So the mission of the Bomb Squad is for Detective Rothman and, and of his team of hand-picked men, each of which have a certain expertise. They, they need to investigate this sudden surge of German espionage that's wrecking havoc along the Eastern Seaboard, which includes figuring out the source of these smuggled explosives that are being tucked on board steamships crossing the Atlantic. These ships will be crossing the Atlantic. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there'll be an explosion on the ship, and many times the ship would sink, and uh, they didn't know why this was happening. So this is part of the story. They have to try to investigate what's going on, and it's all taking, it's all emanating from the New York City metropolitan area. So the bomb squad follows the exploits of these two men, Dr. Schwartz and Detective Rothman, through this it's an interconnecting, interconnecting tale of, of, law, of love, uh, of loss, of friendship and betrayal. And it goes from you know the American shores all the way to the epicenter of German power, uh, its capital Berlin. So I think you know it's a, it's a riveting page-turning tale of the clash of the patriots. You know each one, each patriot believing in their own cause, and then you know, during a time when the when the world is at war, and right before America enters World War One. So that's a little background of what the Bomb Squad's about. Now, I understand that you have a special that you want to offer my listeners uh, dealing with the Bomb Squad. Why don't you uh, go ahead and break that news now? Okay. So, um, as, um, as a writer, um, writers need reviews. Um, it helps. That's the key to selling books. So not only are you a writer, but you also become a bookseller as well. So, um, I have to be able you know, want to sell my books and on Amazon. It's a big, uh, big help to have reviews. So in order to get reviews, um, I have to recruit readers to read my book and leave re and leave reviews. So what I'd like to do for your listeners, for your audience, is to offer a free uh, copy of my book, a free PDF, a download, and I'll I'll email it to them. So if they email me at neilperrygordon at gmail.com, uh, I will in return send them a PDF, and hopefully they'll read the book. And hopefully they'll like it and give me five stars on Amazon. And that's my, that's my offer. And if you want, I don't know, you maybe you could put it out on your on your site, uh, the email address, unless you want me to spell it out for people. No, I can put it on the in the show notes now. So th this uh, episode will be released on Sunday, May the third. Does this have a limit to a, a time limit to the offer, mm -hmm. or is that just good from now throughout? It'll, it'll be good now for I just mentioned, you know, if you mention the show name on the on the email, um, this way I can make the, I can make sure that, you know, we, we know where it's coming from and uh, just request the copy of the, uh, the book and that's it. Oh, cool. Okay. So what is it like to be a writer? I mean, what, what is your process? I know you, you do a lot of, you base things on family and, and historical events and so forth, but how do you get to the the actual writing what where does that come from for you um well uh, first of all the way the, the way i write my books i write them what i i don't write with an outline number one i i, I have an idea 
of my characters. I have an idea of the, the plot, uh, an idea of where I want it to go. And then I begin. And I'll begin with the story and I just see where it takes me. I really don't know. I mean, I want to get from A to Z, but I don't know where, where I'll be in between and how I'll get there. That's been my process so far. On my, you know, my, actually written uh, enough for six books, even though four is only published. Um, so that's that's the way I've been working. And you know, and now after I have to six after six books, you get a style. You, you get um, you know a certain rhythm to your writing, a certain way you write. And um, and I also believe that each book is better than the previous book. Though I still get the most compliments from my first from my first book, which is kind of ironic to me. Though I do think my, my subsequent writing is better. So, you know, I wake up early. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning to write. I'm very good in the morning, very clear in the morning. That's, that's my prime time. I like writing outdoors when I can. So when the weather gets nice, I like sitting outside and writing. That's also a good place for me to do it. You know, I find, I have to find the right spot. And also the past four weeks with, uh, with not having anywhere to go except staying home, I've had a lot of opportunity to write, and it's been wonderful. So do you write with the computer, or do you handwrite? So I know a lot of authors, writers and all, they, um, the, the process of actually physically writing something is, is part of their, their craft. Uh, how, do, how do you approach that? Yeah, I, use, I, I write on a laptop. The only time I'll write by hand is when I, want, when I get to a point in the story, I'm not sure where to go next. So I'll sort of do like little mind maps on paper and, and sort of just see how things can connect one to the other. So that's when I'll go to pen and paper is when I'm, when I'm trying to do a mind map, so to speak. But if I, and I, you know, and writing historical fiction requires some research. So someone asked me, do I go to library? I said, no, I just, I got Google, man. And everything is at my fingertips. I don't know if I would have been a writer 20 years ago using a typewriter and having to go to the library. It, it would have been like taking forever to write a book. This is so much faster um, and, I, I, and I like that. So yeah, the mechanics of it is, is certainly easier today with a laptop and, and all the search engines we have. When you finish a book and you're ready to publish, what's that process? Do you create the cover and, and all that or is that do you turn that over to a agency to you know to do the art i mean i know you're an artist so uh, i kind of assume that you probably have a hand in everything i do um so when, when i'm done with the manuscript i've done with a couple in my second or third draft of my manuscript it goes to an editor uh, so i work my, with my editor she will then write notes and we'll go back and forth for a couple of weeks trying to polish it up then once that's done it goes to a proofreader who proofreads it and then we look at it again and then it gets formatted either for paperback or formatted for ebook I do work with a book designer um, who's done wonderful work. And you can look at my covers of my books. They're just amazing. I will give him the input of what I'm trying to look for. And uh, it's very exciting when he comes back with uh, his book design. So it's wonderful. Uh, so I do work with a professional for that. I also do audiobooks. Um, so I have two audiobooks done of my first two books. I have two more in being produced now. So that's also interesting because you get to work with a narrator. So I audition narrators for audiobooks. And so that's fun because then you get, you know, five or six different auditions and they'll, they'll read the first, you know, 15 pages of your book and you listen to the tone of the voice and, you know, and try to imagine 
this is the person you want telling your story. Um, and some, just like you, you, just you know are not right. And some are so good. And then some like you're not quite sure. But I have two great guys, two different, two different men recording uh, The Righteous One and The Bomb Squad now that are really exciting. So in a couple of weeks, about two more weeks, I'll have two new audiobooks available as well. So all, uh, all four of my books will be on uh, ebook, paperback, and audio. Yeah, that was my next question was that if you can get a physical copy. So you, apparently you can't even get a paperback. Is that through yeah. Amazon? Well, through, yeah, you can get paperback in all my books. You can even get hardcover for The Cobbler's Tale as well. So that's even available. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So you said you, you're in the works with two other books, uh, one that's in the draft stage and one that's... Yeah, well, uh, what, can you, is there anything you can right talk, talk about those? Sure. Um, one is with my editor. In fact, I just got an email back. She's sending me back her notes tomorrow. So that book is called Hope City. And um, that's going to be published um, probably in June. It's uh, The Alaskan Adventures of Percy Hope. It takes place in uh, Alaska in the summer of 1898 during the gold rush. And uh, it's the adventures of, this, of these two 17-year-old boys from San Francisco who graduate from high school, head up to Alaska when the, when the gold rush is, is going on. And it's their story of that summer vacation, so to speak. Uh, it's more of a trip down the rabbit hole than anything else in a place called Hope. Um, and, and Hope does exist today. And in fact, I go up there every summer to Hope, Alaska. To visit friends and that's where i spent two weeks every summer up there so i decided to write a story about it about their about their town so hopefully i'll be able to go up this july you know the, i'll have the courage to get on a plane and, and travel up there and, and promote my book to the town of hope about their about their story hope city the book i'm working on now uh, it's called white slave and it's a darker story um back in um the 1920s and 1930s, there was this Jewish organization called Zvi Migdal. And the Zvi Migdal were uh, like a mafia, Jewish mafia of Argentinian men, rich men, who would go to Poland and go to shtetls, which were poor Jewish villages, and uh, recruit young Jewish women with the allure of marrying rich Argentinian men. But it was a scam, and then and they would pay off the parents. They would take these young women on steamships across the Atlantic to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and put them into brothels as sex slaves. And this went on for years and years and years. And they were very powerful, and they ran Buenos Aires. They had politicians and police in their pockets, and there was thousands of what they call them palakas, which was the these, these Jewish. Um, sex slaves. Um, and so I write this story about that time and it ends up being um, it ends up being a love story between these two people that begins in Poland in 1924, goes down to Buenos Aires and then it ends up in, up in New York. So I just finished the first draft of that and uh, so you know it was interesting writing that story because I had to go to places that were much more a lot more deeper, a lot more <coughs> controversial. A lot more upsetting uh, when you talk about sex slaves, Jewish women being subjected to that type of uh, torment. So I had, I wasn't sure I, I could do it, but I, I decided to go for it. And uh, it's going to take some more work to to really 
get the um, get the the pain into that story. But uh, this is this is this is what I'm working on next. Do you have any rituals that you go through when you finish a book, like maybe taking yourself to dinner or? <laughs> <laughs> My ritual is what am I going to do next? You know, it's like someone says to me, "Why don't you just take a break?" I'm like, no, I don't want to take a break. I want to keep going. I just, I don't like the fact of not writing. I like having that, having to do some writing all the time. So it's not always writing. So now that I'm done with the first draft, I got to go back now. I got to make revisions. I got to make sure the dates work. Because in your historical fiction, you have, you have to work with dates. And sometimes you put a character in and then you look and go, oh, I can't use that person. He wasn't really there at that time of his life. Um, so you may have got the dates wrong, so you might have to make shifts and that. Uh, so yeah, so the, the, the drafting and then the editorial review and making the changes. It's not until I send the book off uh, back after the final proofread that I'm really done with it um, in terms of my contribution to the book. Uh, then the other people involved in creating a book take over. Um, so yeah, that's what it's over. And now that I'm, I'm ready, I, I do have two books in mind coming up next is I want to do a sequel to Hope City because I leave the book off for a sequel and I want to do a sequel to the Bomb Squad um, as well because this this team that I created this Bomb Squad team is it's, it really became uh, an interesting group of these five men each having you know, certain skills that they uh, that they're able to uh, uh, use as, as uh, try to uncover uh, the German espionage that's that's happening in New York, so I, I want to go further with that story. So I think, I, well, I know it's going to be there will be a second book there. So I have two I have two follow ups to one to the Bomb Squad will have a second book, and one to Hope City will have a second book. Do you have any advice that you would like to give to a new author who is you know starting the journey of writing their first book? Yeah, I get that question a lot. You know, it's it's not just for someone who wants to be a writer, it's actually someone who just wants, who's always wanted to do one thing or another. You know, I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to be a yoga teacher. I've always wanted to be a painter. I always wanted to, you know, to be a writer, whatever it may be. My, my advice is just get started. Just jump in and do it, you know, stop procrastinating. But that's just me. You know, I think, you know, my personality is I'm never afraid to try something new. So whatever it may be and all the, you know, at, at running my own business for 35 years, you, you, you become very adept at having the courage to, to try new things. Like I did in 2008 when I shifted my business model because of the Great Recession. You know, I, I made a, I took a tremendous risk. But you know, when you run your own business, you're, every day you're taking that risk. Every day you're making it rain. It's, it's up to you, you know, it's not like you, 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 it's a different mindset than having, having a job and having that, that, you know, that comfort of the job, which also tends me to think that why I'm positive during this great pause, that I'll be okay on the other end. I have no income now, you know, my business is not operating, so there's no income. And I don't get unemployment because I'm the owner of the business. So, I'm, you know, we, we got an SBA loan to, um, to see us through, but that's something I have to pay back. So yeah, I you know there's there's no handouts for for the entrepreneurs in this world. Uh, usually we have to make it on our own, but that's the way I like it. You know that's that's the way I've always done it. It's the way my father did it, my grandfather did it, my great grand great grandfather. You know, before we were entrepreneurs, we were all called merchants. 
you know, and that's just the, the, the nature of all my ancestors. That's interesting. Something you, you just said that, uh, and you said it earlier too, but I didn't mention it, but the, you calling the coronavirus situation we're going going through right now as the great pause. That's the first time I've heard that. And it's so, you know, that, that really is what we're ha what's happening to us. We're just having to pause our life for a month or two and then get back again. Was that a uh, term you coined or, or is that from somewhere else? No, no, I read it elsewhere. Someone else uh, used it. I, I loved it because I think that's exactly what describes it. You know, we go back, we have all these events, the Great Depression, the Great Recession and the Great Pause, each as significant as the other. And who knows the significance of this, the psychological significance of what's going on now will be examined for history for, for, for decades and decades to come. You know, it will be, you know, as, as a writer, you know, you look for juicy historical events to write around, especially when you write historical fiction. You look all the books and all the movies about World War II. Why are there so many books and movies about World War II? Because there was so much conflict. There was so much human drama. You know, that's what people want to want to study. That's what entertains us. That's what we read books about. That's why we go to movies. That's what's going to happen now. I mean, the, the documentation of the time now will be told to generations not yet born and will be fascinated by this time. So, yeah, we're living in a, in a big time, a big historical moment. And as a historical fiction writer, it's, 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 it's significant. So is there anything that I haven't uh, asked you or that you want to bring up now? Well, I just wish that um, everyone who's listening the best of health. Uh, I know it's it's a troubling time, and I, I understand the situation that you're in with with your mom. You know, it's 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 challenging. It's it's scary. You know, it's um, it's a tough time. But I think that you know, humanity will will. will you know, it's 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 the it's the fight. It's always a fight between good and evil in my mind. You know, I know it's not life is not always so binary, but when you become a writer and you have the antagonist and the protagonist, you have good versus evil. You know, you like to tell that story, and you like to sort of, you know, do the same thing with what's coming on, what's going on today and current events, um, pushing the the evil the evil virus versus the, the goodness of of man. You know, that's the ultimate battle we're seeing today. So that's probably what I would end with.